Show. Well, hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show. Thanks for letting me have the week off last week. I was feeling under the weather, but I feel better now. And uh, it's good to see everybody. We are, um, I'll just kind of let you know right up top, having some technical difficulties with Grace, who I'm hoping will join us as the show unfolds. Her kind of screen froze moments before it was time to start the show. So hopefully, social media manager Grace Vaughn will be here uh, shortly. But in the meantime, I think I remember how to run this show on my own. (laughs) We will find out together. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show. This is a program where we talk about empathetic skepticism. We are live right now on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook, and we're so glad you're here as we explore our feelings and how to understand other people's feelings and how to think critically and how to have information literacy and media literacy and basically work together to make the kind of world that we'd all like to live in. And tonight, we've got a really special program planned for you. Uh, We've had a lot of requests from Cozy Robots to talk about COVID-19 again. Now, why on earth would anyone want to talk about COVID-19? Because we've heard a lot about that virus uh, recently. For the last year, it's basically been all we've talked about as a society. But there are new developments uh, with the vaccine and with the variants and with people trying to figure out what to do in life to be safe with those things in the air. So we asked you to send in questions uh, after you asked us to cover that topic. And gosh, you sent in a lot of COVID-19 questions. So we are going to work through those together tonight. Now, as we talk about COVID-19, let me remind you of something. I'm going to talk about your questions, and we're going to go through them in depth. But we have to remember, I am not a medical professional, I am not a deep epidemiologist, and I'm not a doctor. I'm a nerd who studies science passionately, and I'm going to do my best to offer you an evidence-based, incredible perspective. But anything I say, you should fact-check, you should double-check, and you should talk to doctors, physicians, and healthcare experts, and you should fact-check me using reputable sources, not conspiracy theories on YouTube, but things like the CDC website and other credible uh, sources before making any medical decisions. Again, I am not a doctor. So I think I see Grace has returned here. Hi, everybody. Hi. (laughs) My internet is being really weird, but I am back again and excited to talk about the updates on COVID, the news surrounding the virus and uh, the vaccine. Mike, what are your thoughts about everything you've heard, all the updates? Man, we are in such a wild place right now. Um. I have this kind of cautious feeling. I didn't know what to uh, describe as at first. And it's a hope. I'm actually starting Mm. to feel hopeful. Now, that doesn't mean there are a lot of problems still. You know, we have still inconsistent policies state by state. We have inconsistent vaccination rates across the world. We have serious issues with how we're rolling out the vaccine in the U.S. uh, based on... Um, economic access barriers and racial and ethnic boundaries. The communities that have kind of been hit the hardest by COVID-19 are being vaccinated the most slowly. That's a big problem. 
Uh, at the same time, we're beginning to really accelerate our vaccination rates in the United States. We have variants from all over the world. There's a California variant. There's a South African variant. There's a UK variant. There's other variants which are calling into question the ability for these vaccines to work effectively. And maybe these variations are okay, but additional variations could make vaccines hard to work with. So there's we're not out of the woods, and we can imagine a time in the not too distant future where things are a lot more normal than they've been in a long time. So I find myself trying to allow myself to feel hopeful, trying to allow myself to experience some optimism while not pinning my psychological well-being on any given outcome, still trying to hold things very loosely in order to, you know, be mentally healthy or as mentally healthy as I can be in this really difficult time that we've all been facing together. Grace, how have you been processing the kind of COVID world these last few weeks? I I have a difficult relationship with social media and the news because my job is literally to be checking both of those things constantly to make sure that I'm up to date and letting the audience know what they need to know. What is so interesting is that I often find myself not wanting to be informed anymore because mm-hmm. it can be so painful and disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but, uh, that being said, it, you can't avoid it. And also to avoid it completely would be dangerous. I mean, at some point you need to know what, for instance, the vaccine does or doesn't do. Uh, you need to know, um, the severity of the virus. Otherwise, you're not um, you're not informed, and you're not moving through the world informed. And I, I think that there's someone asked a really great question, actually, that is all about what we're talking about. Kyle Ben Cruz on Instagram asked, "How do you cope with the hope and disappointment cycles we've all been experiencing?" Mm-hmm. And I really resonated with that. That's why I wanted to ask you that, Mike. Um, how have you been coping with the hope and disappointment cycles that we've all been experiencing? Gosh, for me, it's mostly been disappointment since, uh, gosh, February of last year. Yeah. Um, I haven't experienced many cycles of hope because kind of I would think, well, here's the worst thing we could do. And then that's just kind of what we did <laughs> as mm-hmm. a culture and as a society. At every level, our governments have have, have performed really poorly, most governments in the world. Um, the cultural responses have been lacking. Uh, cultures who did better, with a few exceptions, would end up kind of relapsing. And um, for me, it's just been allowing myself to grieve, allowing myself to be angry, allowing myself to be sad, and to understand that those feelings have to be processed and to, as much as possible, reach out for support when I need it, uh, when that sadness or anger metastasizes into depression or rage or in some other way impairs my ability to function and thrive and, and be okay, um, to reach out to people I love and who support me and who I respect and say, I need help. I'm, I'm in a bad place with this stuff. And when things have started to look better much more recently, 
I've been trying to take it a day at a time, to be very present, to say, cases are down today. And I'm glad cases are down today without necessarily putting some expectation on the future. Deaths are down today. Taking things a day at a time, understanding that there's a lot of factors that could cause a loss of ground or a regression as we are facing uh, a global challenge of a pandemic, uh, but really savoring the small things. You know, uh, I've been one of those people that has basically totally been isolated since last spring. Over the summer, when cases got down a little bit, we had a few people over, one household at a time in our backyard, uh, masked and distanced. And uh, and then the you know cases started to get higher again as we went into the fall, and I kind of closed all that back down. And my family, we just fall and winter, totally isolated, just us. And you know, uh, this weekend, uh, we ate lunch with friends in their backyard. And it was wonderful. It was just so nice. Yeah. And so I just found myself savoring that. Like, I don't know what next weekend will be like. I certainly don't know what two months away will look like. But I know that that was a great time to just be together with friends again. And um, and that's been my approach is just that presence of taking each day as what it is, a single day, a single moment. In a string of days, sure. Uh, But the magnitude of all the days together is often more than I can bear. And so just one day at a time is is what I can do. One day at a time. There was another question someone asked, and I'm going to try to find it before I go just chronologically through these questions. But it had something to do with what you were talking about. Someone asked you, Mike, if you had started to plan for the future, for the not socially distanced future. And I'm sorry, I cannot find this person's handle right now, but it was a great question. Mike, what are your thoughts about um, making plans for the future? Well, I follow advice from health experts. And so epidemiologists have laid out criteria based on case numbers about what is safe and when. And I take those guidelines and then uh, public health parks actually take those guidelines and then apply them as local policy. And then I'll evaluate local policies where I live. I live in Los Angeles, California. And so I'll look at what the state of California and Los Angeles County and the city of Glendale, which is where I live, how they are um, interpreting those epidemiologist recommendations. And I'll see if I agree with them or not. What I've found is typically... Uh, state and city governments uh, are more comfortable with risk than I am. So I tend Mm -hmm. to work like a tier behind what they say is okay, or maybe in some ways two tiers behind what they say is okay. But as cases are dropping so quickly in LA, um, I've then started to plan for what it looks like to be around people again. Right now, that means one household at a time, wearing a mask, a hug is okay when we first get there. We understand that you know a hug is actually a pretty low-risk activity uh, when you're with just one other household compared to like a handshake uh, or something like that, yeah. or, or you know staying close by with masks off. It, I'd, I'd rather people hug and then get a little distance than stay closer for longer. Um, But if cases continue to drop and vaccination rates continue to rise and um, 
vaccinations continue to outpace new variants, which right now is happening in the United States, then I can imagine a situation where, well, we already have the epidemiological guidelines. Right now, if you're with a group of people and they've all been vaccinated for like an in-home gathering, the CD says you don't have to really follow any special guidelines. You can just be together, masks off, and hang out. They also say that if uh, you haven't been exposed to COVID recently and you've been vaccinated, you can uh, share a household or household contact with another household that has not been vaccinated, and that's a safe activity. So when I have friends and family um, in my life who are uh, not only have had their vaccination, but had the amount of time elapsed since their vaccination that's appropriate to consider themselves immune, that's 28 days past the single-dose single Johnson & Johnson virus, or, uh, excuse me, vaccine, or uh basically 14 days following your second dose of uh, either the Moderna or Pfizer uh, vaccines, um, I would get together with uh, someone who had vaccine immunity even mm -hmm. before I've been vaccinated. Now, beyond that, what does the world look like? That gets more complicated. As we vaccinate more people, as we get into June and July, uh, we'll have to look at, does it look like... Um, these vaccines do a good job of preventing transmission in addition to preventing disease. Early data, including some studies, is very promising. But if we have a, a variant come through, that could kind of extend timelines again. So we look at what is the immediate future look like. What the immediate future looks like is uh, things are safer. We can more safely be around small numbers of people. And I can foresee a world where things go well, where late summer and in fall, in the United States at least, uh, we can start doing a lot of things that seem more normal, things like indoor dining, maybe even things like people going to bars. I think we might be a while from uh, trade shows and concerts and really mm -hmm. big gatherings of people being uh, safe, but but who knows? That, that could be late winter um, or even wow. early winter, depending on how things go, with some precautions. I think I think masking might be a thing that uh, becomes part of our ritual for quite some time, but we might have more questions about that. So we I'll stop rambling. Do. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely, we, you're exactly right. We do have more questions exactly about that. And I just want to give a shout out to, uh, I believe the handle is Kiwianquina on Instagram, who asked that great question about whether or not Mike was making plans for the non-socially distanced future. Thank you so much for that question. Our next question comes from Patrick Thomas 2321 on Instagram, who asked, will COVID vaccines become a yearly shot? Will companies like Johnson & Johnson keep producing new strains? That's a great question. And COVID-19 uh, is a disease caused by a specific coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2. That's the name of that virus. What do we know about coronaviruses? Gosh, they love to mutate. They don't <laughs> mutate quite as yeah. readily as influenza. But, you know, about a quarter, between a fifth and a quarter each year of common cold cases come from coronaviruses. So um, we know that, a, that when a coronavirus gets into a human population, they love to become a seasonal virus. What we would expect is over time for SARS-CoV-2 to become less deadly and probably more infectious. That's, that's typically how coronaviruses work. But you can have a period of years 
where this kind of seasonal variation of, of COVID continues to have a potentially high lethality, high case fatality rates. So if that's the case, absolutely, I expect for five or 10 years, we will get at least one COVID booster shot a year. At, depending on, there, there's a big thing here, a big question mark, and that is the rate at which people, not just in the United States, but around the world get vaccinated. It actually doesn't help the U.S. if everyone here gets vaccinated and then people in other countries struggle to get vaccine supply. Why? Because that allows COVID to continue to spread. And when COVID continues to spread, it can continue to mutate. And the mutations are what potentially create new variants that the vaccine is not effective against, or the vaccines, plural. Um, so it is in our interest that everyone who can be vaccinated in the world gets vaccinated. You know, when we have some some vaccine hesitancy in the United States, a lot of people would talk about vaccine hesitancy in the in black communities, which is, in my opinion, pretty inappropriate. Number one, because those hesitancies are dropping, and number two, because they have historical uh, precedents and grounds of legitimacy. But when we look at the largest group of people with vaccine hesitancy in the United States, it's white evangelical Christians and Trump voters. About 47% of those people indicate they don't want to be vaccinated or are not going to take the vaccine. If those numbers hold, you will have a viable subpopulation in the U.S. that will continue to allow SARS-CoV-2 to spread to get new infection, new cases, and to what? Mutate. So potentially, depending on the number of people who decline vaccination, that will be a contributing factor into how fast and how readily SARS-CoV-2 mutates, and therefore, how often we have to get booster shots. I fully expect that uh, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and all these different companies that are doing work on COVID vaccines are going to continue, and in fact, are right now testing their formulations against new variants. There's trials to see if a third dose of the mRNA vaccines provides additional immunity against the variants. They are sequencing new variances as they come in, and they are already working on um, specific vaccines for COVID variants as well. So, you know, the, the boosters we'll take next year are already being worked on right now, and I expect that's going to be a significant part of the pharmaceutical industry for, you know, maybe 10 years. Wow. Mike, you mentioned a significant portion of the population is hesitant to get the vaccine. Kessel.runner on Instagram asks, is it manipulative to tell my QAnon type in-laws that they can see my kids only after they get the vaccine? No, that doesn't sound manipulative to me at all. That sounds like setting boundaries. I have noticed that in American culture especially, uh, setting boundaries, determining the factors by which you will be in relationship with others, is often described as manipulation when I think the opposite of tr is true. Trying to get you to change your boundaries to suit someone else's behavior is actually manipulative. So, no, I don't mm. think... That is manipulative at all. And I would tell you that um, in my uh, friendships and in my relationships and my family, if I have family who refuses to be vaccinated, I'm just not going to see them until they are. And if that's never, then I, I suppose 
I'll never see them again, or at least not until COVID literally represents no health risk to me or my family or what to marginalized communities. The thing that's so frustrating when you talk about um, white evangelicals and Trump voters having vaccine hesitancy is we understand that uh, white communities and affluent communities really were spared the worst of this pandemic. The severe case rates were lower. The death rate was much lower. Um, and so you have kind of these these different narratives about what the vaccine is like, depending on uh, economic access, race, and ethnicity. And I am white, and I am relatively affluent. You know, there's a difference between a lot of people are broke right now. I, I get it. I've been broke a lot during the pandemic. But just because I'm broke doesn't mean I'm poor. I still live in like a, a four-bedroom house in a, in a nice community. Uh, we've got a relatively new car. It's four years old. Um, it's in good working order. We, ha- we, we never worry about if we're going to eat or not, right? So even if I'm like, how are we going to pay this bill this month? How are we going to handle this medical bill? Whatever. The fact is we can scramble. We can get it done. That's the difference between broke and poor. And I am not willing to let my comfort and my relationships be a potential vector that spreads cases in a way that causes death and severe case presentation and impairment and disability in marginalized communities. And I think it's okay for us to set boundaries. I think that's a way to use a spiritual term to love our neighbors. I actually Mm -hmm. think it's really important that um, those, those of us who understand the science, who understand the severity of the pandemic, take actions that not just protect ourselves, but protect people who are at a greater risk to have a severe presentation of this disease. I am a fat person with heart disease and asthma. Uh, COVID is a greater threat to me than some other people. And uh, when people have questioned my level of precaution, and tried to get me to back up on it, I consider that manipulation and have called it as such and set Mm. boundaries around those behaviors. How do you, this is just a question for me, how do you get people who are tired of hearing about COVID news to care? I know we talked about in the first episode we did about COVID, you had this really beautiful statement to say to people who are choosing not to get the vaccine. And I'm wondering if there is, there, there seems to be this exhaustion around certain affluent, affluent um, communities Mm -hmm. around news of the vaccine. How do you, beyond sending them articles, how do you get those people to care or don't, or you don't? I don't think it's anything we say. I think it's what we do. Mm. People, in my experience, people don't really care what we say. People are impacted by what we do with our actual actions. So if we live in responsible ways and we do responsible things and we set boundaries around irresponsible behavior, um, I think that's probably the most effective way. I actually don't send people a lot of articles. The people yeah. I talk to about, um, I'm, we're doing a COVID episode tonight. Why? People asked for a COVID episode. So in response to people's interest, I'm happy to share. But I don't try to convince or cajole other people. And 
In the same way that uh, the only way change will happen is when we when we name harmful behaviors. So as I'm I'm a man, and when I'm around men who say sexist or misogynist things, um, I don't sit quietly anymore. I say, hey, that is a sexist and misogynist statement, right? Right. In the same way as a white person, when I hear other white people say things that are racist, I say, that was a racist thing to say. Do you, uh, do you see how what you just said was racist? Well, mm-hmm. in the context of COVID, I won't like send someone an article, but if someone says something harmful and they're around me and we're in relationship, I'll say, do you understand the connection between what you just said and real harm to real people, right? Yeah. And I'll name uh, people, right. I'll name communities, I'll name, uh, you know, specific people in my life. And most people are moved by that. And the small number who aren't, that is a great signal to me that that's not actually someone I want to be in deep relationship with. Mm-hmm. If I am talking to someone and they tell me that, you know, they're, they're just tired of this whole thing and they don't care if a friend of mine who is black lost family. Okay, you're not the kind of person I'm going to invest further in relationship with. Um, there's there, You have deeper issues that you need to address in your life and that's, that's right. not my place to address them for you. Um, and, I, you know, I would say um, I have lost some relationships during the pandemic based on that, those kind of responses and reactions. And um, I'm not talking about shunning people, by the way. I'm talking about, again, setting boundaries, setting clear expectations, communicating clearly about what is and not and is not acceptable uh, without being, um, I can't think of the word. Time change has got my brain fried tonight. Um, um, <laughs> but you're doing so well, Mike. Without being holier than thou. There right? you go. Like, I, there's no sense of self-superiority or... here. It's simply that the data says what the data says. People I love have had severe COVID cases that have lasted months. People I love have had have lost family members, multiple family members. People I love who are immunocompromised or have other comorbidities have been stuck in total social isolation for more than a year. And if you can't find in your heart any compassion for those people that I love, yeah, this is this is that's it for us for now. Maybe yeah. maybe we can reevaluate that in the future. That's a wonderful, wonderful answer to my question. Thank you so much, Mike. <laughs> Try. It was really good. Um, Thank you, by the way, to everyone sending in your comments as we stream live. This is a live stream. And so you can be sending in real time comments to this conversation and join us. Caitlin says, do you think things like Thanksgiving will happen this year, Mike? I know we talked a little bit about big gatherings. Uh, I think Thanksgiving's almost a shoe in this year. Unless some variant comes in, which is possible. Uh, that really, really lowers vaccine efficacy, I would expect that Thanksgiving with other vaccinated people would look Mm -hmm. completely normal this year. Um, Now, if if a lot of your family refuses to vaccinate, you're probably not doing Thanksgiving with them safely. Um, Mm -hmm. But 
if everyone vaccinates, uh, then I, I don't. I don't want to speak out of turn. November's a long way away, but on the trajectory you're on right now, with the kind of uh, mitigation of death, severe case presentation, and transmission we are seeing with all the vaccine variants, even the AstraZeneca vaccine, which kind of has a bad rep in the U.S., is is historically a pretty strong vaccine. Mm. Um, I could definitely see by November. Like, you just wow. get together with friends and family. You get on an airplane, like the whole thing. Now, you oh probably are wearing a mask on the airplane. Sure. Uh, but you get there, you get with your family, and once you're in a home together, uh, yeah, it's masks off, it's back to normal. That's that's the track we're on right now. That's why I say I'm feeling so hopeful and so wow. optimistic. And yeah. why, listen to me, friends, why the vaccines are so important because the more people that take these vaccines, the more normal things get, and the sooner they get more normal. Mike, on that note, I think it's time to keep the lights on. Okay, here we go. Let's do some ads. We'll answer more questions right on the other side of this ad break. We could not make the Cozy Robot Show without the help of our wonderful sponsors. And our first sponsor this week is one of my favorites, BetterHelp. Join over 1 million people who've been taking charge of their mental health with what is, to my knowledge, the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support. BetterHelp is an online counseling service. What do they do? They connect you with licensed professional counselors who have specializations in all the kinds of challenges we are facing together today. Things like stress, anxiety sleep issues, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, relationships, depression, and LGBTQ matters. And in this era when we are still social distancing to be safe, BetterHelp is perfect. Why? Because you can connect with a therapist over text, chat, call, and video. Now, what if you and your therapist are both vaccinated? Well, I still think BetterHelp is a win because I don't like to worry about commuting and parking and trying to deal with all the stuff of getting around a city or an area in order to connect with a therapist. Uh, BetterHelp makes it all easy. You take your therapy in the location of your choosing that is most comfortable to you. I use it every single day and I love it. And you can get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. You'll fill out a questionnaire. They will connect you with a counselor who specializes in the challenges you're facing. And best of all, if there's any problem, it just doesn't work. You don't really click with this person. BetterHelp will assign you a new therapist for no additional cost anytime. No questions asked. It's the easiest way to get the mental health support that you need and deserve. Go to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots to learn more. Our other sponsor this week is KiwiCo, an absolutely delightful company with a delightful product line. KiwiCo creates accessible, hands-on projects for kids of all ages. And I do mean all ages. Uh, I consider myself a kid of all ages in the Kiwi model because I build a Kiwi crate every month. And they make learning about STEAM fun. I don't mean hot water. I mean science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Every Kiwi Crate is designed by experts and tested by kids. They spend over a thousand hours designing and testing every crate. When you sign up, you get a crate delivered every month that comes with everything needed 
to build that project, which includes kid-friendly instructions. It's a way to get away from screens and into hands-on learning experiences that are fun, totally fun. So why not discover engaging science and art projects for kids of all ages? You can build hydraulic devices, a walking robot, see how high you can make a rocket fly, all those things. Anything you need to make STEAM seriously fun delivered right to your doorstep. So why not start by getting 30% off your first month plus free shipping on absolutely any of KiwiCo's wonderful crate lines by using coupon code COZYROBOTS. Go to KIWICO.com and use promo code COZYROBOTS to get started. Mike, let's jump into just some people wanted some facts, Mike. And facts. let's this, this, I mean, uh, first of all, I just want to say to everybody, thank you so much for sending in all of your questions. We got over 50 for this episode. Um, great job. Great job. Great audience participation. Um, Alyssa Man Cressy on Instagram asks, any updates, thoughts on vaccines for kids 16 and under? This mom wants to know. Well, that's a great question, and it's going to be a little while, and it's going to be a little while for good reason. You know, there's so much questions about, are vaccines safe, and are vaccines tested? And uh, yes, vaccines are safe, and yes, vaccines are tested. And when we work on vaccinations, there is an intentional order. We start with adults, and adults go through all of their trials, phase one, phase two, and phase three, and then you start rolling out the vaccine, and you look for side effects in the general population of people who administered the vaccine outside of studies. All that is studied, and it's logged, and it's and it's researched, and it's paid attention to. And it's not until things look good in a large number of adults that you then start trials back at phase one for people younger than 16. So right now, Trials are starting for children ages 12 to 16. Because COVID-19 is a serious health crisis, you will probably see emergency use authorizations for the vaccine for people 12 to 16 next. That process could take a year, honestly. After uh, that cohort group goes through trials and you start seeing good data coming out, then they will look at younger and younger aged children successively using data not only from the previous trials, but also the authorized use of the vaccines to make sure it's safe until eventually you could probably imagine we will have an infant COVID vaccine and that, that'll get updated every year. But we move slowly on purpose. Here's why. I'm an adult. My body isn't changing a lot. I mean, it's aging, but <laughs> the, the, the kind of baseline physical, physical template uh, for me from when I was kind of a late teen to when I'm 90 years old, uh, there's not the same explosive growth. There's not the same biological stages of development that occur. The developmental cycles I go through now are decades long instead of months long, right? So we we should be more cautious about vaccinating children and we should do more research and that's what's happening now. The good news is, number one, COVID does not affect children any, with anywhere near the severity that affects uh, adults and certainly not senior adults. And uh, when adults no longer transmit the virus, 
that will automatically kind of slow down infection rates among children. Although that is why even when we have vaccine and kids get back into school, I'm just going to warn everybody and set your expectations. School is going to look different. Kids are still going to have to do a lot of masking and a lot of distancing for a while while we work on vaccine formulations for them. Uh, so that's what I mean. Like things will get more normal. Things will look kind of pre-pandemic for a long time, but we'll safely be able to reopen schools as teachers and staff and adults have been vaccinated. And then kids will have to take some extra precautions for a little while longer while we test uh, and trial the vaccine for younger aged children. And that will successively move down. Again, right now we're looking at, we, the vaccine's authorized for 16 and up. The next round will be 12 to 16. After that, I'd imagine it'll probably be like 6 to 12. And then finally, uh, they'll move into those very young children after that. You mentioned emergency use. And yes. we actually have a question about that. Erica underscore Lindsay underscore Hester on Instagram asks, what does it mean that the FDA authorized emergency use but didn't formally approve the vaccine? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things I've heard people worried about is like, well, these things were tested so quickly. Are they safe? Yes, they are safe. They've been tested uh, with incredible rigor. And they have an emergency use authorization. And that's different than um, an approval. Um a biological approval. So um, why? And what's the difference? You can only get emergency use authorizations for a medical treatment during a medical emergency and not a personal one, a societal one. So H1N1, Ebola, anytime you have rapidly spreading viruses with high mortality rates, there's a different path towards approving a vaccination. Why? Because the normal process is very time-consuming when we move towards an actual authorization. I think you'll see in time, all these vaccines will get authorizations. They'll get a pr proper approvals. Um, just not yet. Why the different process? Well, with COVID, if we would have waited until it could get an approval, like a normal approval, well, gosh, we already lost a half million Americans. How many would we have waited? If the vaccine took three years to test, that would have been a lot of death and a lot of economic calamity. So that that's the purpose of emergency youth authorizations is to allow a more expensive, more recessed, and more rapid model that includes less long-term data, uh, but actually larger and sooner uh, safety data than a normal approval. So when public health experts and epidemiologists kind of look at a given disease or public health crisis, they have to weigh, you know, the total safety to the public. And the total safety in this case means an emergency use authorization ends up saving a lot more lives than um, waiting for the additional data you would need for a traditional approval could come through, which is, again, a multi-year process. Um, it's complex. It's subtle. It's also very necessary. There's a reason you can't get an emergency use authorization outside of emergency, but there's also a reason why you don't wait for an approval when there is an emergency. All of these uh, paths and, and processes were created before COVID-19 was even a thing. 
This is a well-understood, well-used process that has been used for public health emergencies in the past without issue and will be used again in the future. Mike, are they recommending the vaccine for pregnant women? And does it matter what trimester they're in? They are recommending the vaccine for pregnant women. Um, The vaccines, I suppose I should say. Uh, all of the uh, emergency youth authorizations for uh, the three, the two mRNA and the one uh, traditional vaccine that are out now. I actually haven't seen trimester data. I don't know. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, safety in a given trimester, that would be a great thing to talk to your doctor about. But remember, in, in general with vaccines, um, even if you get a vaccine side effect, it's less severe on your body than getting what? COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So I would I'd strongly say just kind of talk to your doctor, see how that goes. But in general, um, pregnant women in all three trimesters are being vaccinated and we haven't seen complications associated with that. Lisa Luetta on Instagram asks, what happens if you delay the second dose of a two-dose vaccine? Do you have to start again? You don't have to start again. It depends on how much of a delay there is. We certainly recommend that people stick to the published uh, timelines. Um, most epidemiologists are saying that though, if you're off by a couple weeks, it's no big deal. Um, but do your best to get your shot when it's available to you the second time. Now, that's important. Why? Because that's how we've tested for it's likely not unsafe to wait. Hmm. Uh, it's not going like, to hurt you, but it could potentially lower uh, your immunity to COVID nineteen. Um, so you want to get those viruses when they are. You want to get those vaccines when they are scheduled for you to do so, if at all possible. And if not, as soon as possible. Uh, uh, you know, even if you miss the date, don't wait. Mike, speaking of getting the vaccine, we had someone from Australia send in a question. I'm going to try to locate it, but I do remember the gist of it. Okay. Uh, Here it is. Nomadblue.shop on Instagram asks, if in Australia, where we haven't had many cases, is it still wisest to get the vaccine? Oh, for sure. Yeah, Uh, because eventually I assume... Um, Australia would like to reintegrate with global society. <laughs> right? Yeah, so that would be the hope. Congratulations, Australia. Congratulations, New Zealand. Congratulations, South Korea and you countries that have just gold star response, taken it seriously, followed the science, had very few cases, had very few deaths. Good for you. Mm. Like, cheers, hurrah. I salute you, the whole thing. And you got to get vaccinated. <laughs> because otherwise, yeah. when you start reintegrating with vaccinated people, so the transmission rates in studies so far, high 90% reduction in transmission for vaccinated people. That's very high. That's still not zero. And so you can mm. imagine when Australia opens their borders again, if no one in Australia gets the vaccine or vaccination rates are low, someone could come in who's been vaccinated, who has a certificate saying they're okay, and they could transmit COVID-19 into a city into Melbourne, and suddenly you would have a COVID outbreak, and then you would have mutations. This is what I mean when I say every person in the world who can safely be vaccinated, in other words, they don't have a condition that makes it dangerous for them to get a vaccine, 
uh, needs to be vaccinated. And we need to do that as fast as we possibly can, because that mitigates the ability for COVID to mutate into more contagious and more dangerous variations that reduce the effectiveness of our vaccines. So even if you live in Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, one of these countries that has done an exceptional job throughout the entire course of the pandemic, you still need to be vaccinated and you need to be vaccinated as soon as the vaccine is made available to you. Keeping outside of the U.S., this next question comes from Stockholm. Crisp McGee on Instagram asks, I live in Stockholm. Is there any legitimacy to Sweden's abysmal response to the pandemic? I was shocked. I will tell you, few things shocked me as much as how Sweden, which has a, 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 a usually a pretty responsible uh, government that that does a lot of evidence based policy um, had this like let's just herd immunity it out approach to COVID. Uh, you know, I think there was some rationale there that uh, people living in Sweden tend to be relatively healthy. Your health markers are good across your culture, and so maybe uh, you wouldn't have a problem with severe case presentation or mortality or COVID long hauling. And that turns out to have not been true. And Sweden suffered a lot for a country in Europe uh, from COVID-19 as a result. Um, I think what happened in Sweden is a great illustration of how good scientific consensus is. There were definitely experts. There were definitely public health experts. There were definitely some epidemiologists who thought the Sweden model could work. But they were outside of the consensus of the epidemiological community. And I was just struck with how Sweden stands as a, and the United States, frankly, stands as an illustration for how reliable scientific consensus is on matters of importance that falls within the purview of matters of scientific expertise. So a case could be made and was made by educated people, but that case fell outside of the consensus and the results were predictably disastrous. Heather on Facebook just asked, I would love to know more about the vaccine for organ transplant patients. Any thoughts on that? I've got nothing. I Talk to your doctor, Heather. About it. I don't have a clue. That is definitely, that is one of those groups you talk to your doctor. And if you find out you can't be vaccinated because of the immunosuppressant medications you have to take as a transplant recipient, folks, that is why the rest of us need to get our vaccine, is to protect mm -hmm. those people who cannot take it. And there will be people who can't take any of the vaccines. So another Mike, Mike Clemens on YouTube asked, do you think there will be a point where people will need to prove they have been vaccinated before engaging in some activities or going to some places like maybe carrying a card around? Oh, yeah. I think we'll have kind of a vaccination passport program when we get to the point where um, I could see, you know, bars and other establishments like that requiring proof of vaccination. I could see movie theaters once they get back to 100% capacity. Certainly concerts and trade shows and schools eventually will require proof of vaccination as they do now. Sure, I think uh, proof of vaccination will be a, an important and necessary part 
of moving back towards reopening things. And Mike, going back to the vaccines, facts about the vaccines, Kyle Lee Tubbs on Instagram asked, why do Pfizer and Moderna give two shots while Johnson and Johnson gives just one? Uh, Kyle Lee Tubbs also finished that question with also, thanks for being you. Wanted to throw that one in That there. is so kind. Uh, <laughs> the Pfizer and Moderna va- vaccines are a completely new type of vaccine that we've never used before. They've been studied, so don't, don't hear that as they're frightening. New is not frightening in this case. But the technology hasn't been deployed at scale before. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a traditional vaccine where we've taken the virus and we've removed its ability to reproduce. So you take a, a lot of essentially dead virus and you inject it into someone, uh, and their body's tissues have all these viral particles in there, and your immune system freaks out. It's like, oh my gosh, an infection, stop it, even though that's not a real infection. It won't actually do anything to your body. And uh, that's a well-understood path to vaccination. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are mRNA-based. What does that mean? They are a set of instructions that we put into your body that tell your body to then manufacture proteins that are found in SARS-CoV-2, specifically the spike proteins, the the spikes on the crown, the crown virus, coronavirus. And um, so we give you that vaccine, and then your body makes little fragments, basically, of COVID-19's exterior. And then your body, your immune system, looks at these proteins your body just made and then says, oh my gosh, invaders, stop them. (laughs) Even though they're little fragments of protein your body made that are completely inert and completely harmless. But it trains your immune system, the adaptive part of your immune system, to create antibodies that specifically respond to and target that protein. Now, when we insert that mRNA into your body and enzymes then process it, it disappears. It's gone. And so the second shot there was to uh, give your adaptive immune system another chance because once you've kind of your body's absorbed all of an mRNA vaccine, it stops making those spike proteins. So the second shot gets your body to create more spike proteins and effectively give your adaptive immune system another dress rehearsal at being ready for the event that you see uh, your body, you get exposed to actual COVID-19. And what we found is that that's, that two-shot strategy is, is really effective at raising immunity um, to COVID to, to severe case presentation, to hospitalization, to death, and we're finding out with newer data also to transmission is really important. But the reason you have two shots is because it's a fundamentally different vaccine technology. I don't know if that was accessible at all or if I, I I don't know how much plain English I did there. (laughs) I, I heard, I heard and understood what you were saying. (laughs) Um, I have another question and this one is less about the vaccine, less about masking, uh, all that stuff. Savvy underscore R Skirto on Instagram asks, how will social anxiety be impacted from here on out due to COVID-19. Hmm. Wow. The good news we have, Grace, is all about vaccinations and case rates and things getting back to normal. 
the more challenging thing now is our bodies have been on hyper alert. Whether we're an essential worker or we've been isolating, no matter what the circumstances have been in the last year for all of us, it has been a stressful time and we've been trying to survive, everybody. And we've been, our bodies have been going, 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 going in this state of high stress and in, a, in, in many cases kind of pushing feelings down till they can be dealt with later. And when we start seeing people again and we stop feeling uh, constant survival stress, a lot of those feelings we push down are going to start coming up. That's how human psychology works. And so a friend of mine, um, Dr. Chris Hawley, showed me a study that blew my mind. And this study happened before the pandemic. And it said that social anxiety triples the risks or excuse me, social isolation triples the risk for anxiety and depression. Triples. The other thing that study said was those increased risks persist for nine years after the isolation ends. So there's something about humans who are social animals, who are kind of made to be together. Even the introverts and neurodivergent among us in some way are meant to be around other people. Something happens to us psychologically when we are isolated that is very challenging. I suspect that the next decade is going to be a time of mental health challenge unlike we have seen before. We're going to have to do a lot of work together. and We're going to have to support people because, yeah, it's tough. Um I keep joking that I've become an inside cat. I don't know if you've ever mm. had a cat who is inside all the time who gets outside and they walk outside and their paws hit grass and they drop to the ground and they look around in a panic <laughs> because they just don't know what to do. When I put on two masks and go get uh, an essential item we need to cook dinner at a grocery store, I know how inside cats feel. When I start to see friends, even outside, distanced, wearing a mask, I feel anxiety because it's so different. And I think social anxiety is going to be a big thing. What I'm hoping is because it could be so common, we're going to be really understanding and supportive of each other uh, as we all start to learn how to be together again. And this might be our final question for the night, Mike, but I saved it for last because just like you were saying, I think we all need a little bit of inspiration right now. Mm -hmm. Savannah Jane Herland on Instagram asks, inspiration to keep a burnt out public health nurse going. Mm -hmm. So much vaccine to get into arms. I don't have any inspiration. Mm. I just have gratitude. You and folks like you first push past the very psychological and physical limitations of the human body to save lives and to keep people alive, even as governments and companies and individuals behaved in irresponsible ways, putting you in harm's way. And you and folks like you showed up every day. Mm. And you saved lives. And then 
after all that. Now, you shift gears. And collectively, you have to vaccinate every single vaccinatable person on the planet in order to end the nightmare that has been your lives. I know you're tired, and you have every right to be tired. No healthcare worker is ever going to buy a drink or a meal in my presence for the rest of my life. No. <laughs> um, I don't know how you can keep going, but I know that every shot that you put in an arm saves lives. I know that every shot that you put in an arm is less likely that someone's going to face long-term disability or impairment from this virus. So you have my gratitude, my thanks, my love, and my affection, and my support for the rest of my life. Listen, I will never, ever forget what you've done for us, and I won't let anyone with earshot forget either. Thank you, Mike. <sighs> I was like, I almost made it through the whole episode without crying. <laughs> I almost made it through the whole episode without crying, but I'm there. Oh, gosh. It's just the, the doctors and the nurses and the public health experts and the orderlies and the custodial staff and every single one of those heroes. Uh Gosh, they they are truly heroic in the epic, mythic sense of the word. Absolutely. Mike, that brings us to the end of the show. We did another show. And uh, you all did too. So uh, thanks for watching our program today. Uh, Grace, thank you for hosting so well as you always do. Oh my gosh, thank you, Mike. And uh, don't forget you can like and subscribe on YouTube or Facebook, wherever you're watching. And don't forget you can hear this as a podcast. And also don't forget that we're going to cut all these questions and little clips and release them in the week ahead. So if you mm -hmm. heard one question you'd like to share, just know we do that on all the different channels we're on, especially YouTube, to make it easy for you to have conversations about the topics we discuss together. And remember, the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, like each and every one of our Cozy Robots. I'll see you in 15 minutes for the after party on our Discord server. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music was written and recorded by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill. Social media management by Grace Vaughn. Design by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we just can't wait to see you next week. Take care, friends. Bye, Bye everybody. The Cozy Robot Show.